0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: I am presenting a series of broadcasts on the subject of justification by faith or justification by faith and works, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining that Paul went to Jerusalem to visit with James and to meet with the church in Jerusalem. And the reason why he went there was because there was a disagreement on this subject. People had come from the church in Jerusalem, and they were interfering with the churches in the Gentile world, and the interference had to do with telling the Gentiles who were getting saved that they had to be circumcised and devote their life to living in obedience to the law of Moses. This conflict caused Paul to have to go to Jerusalem. It was actually suggested to him that he go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem and effectively get straightened out. That's what he was told, and so in accordance with what we have recorded in Acts chapter 15, he did go to Jerusalem, but not to get straightened out. He went there to present his case, to explain that the works of God were being performed among the Gentiles, and to testify of the gospel that had been revealed to him by the Lord Jesus. Now, in the previous program, I was explaining in detail the fact that what he was preaching, what he was teaching about the gospel, was distinct from what they were believing in Jerusalem. There were some very significant differences, and that was the fundamental difference. The church in Jerusalem believed that once a person was saved, certainly they could be saved by their faith, but that their salvation was either sustained or their relationship with God was sustained by their obedience to the law. And their obedience to the law would be a life of repentance from their sins and obedience to the commandments of God of what they are to do. That was the life that they told people they needed to be living. That was how they discipled people, was by discipling them in accordance with the law of Moses. But the message that Paul had was something that was very distinct. It was very different. It was you are saved by grace, and so you are to be sustained by the grace of God. You are not to live a life of repentance and obedience, but instead you are to live a life of trust and reliance on, a life of resting and abiding in what the Lord our God did for us. Those were some very distinct differences that caused them to meet in Jerusalem. And I was explaining in the previous broadcast that the council never came to an agreement. And that's very important to realize that they never did come to an agreement. The result of the council was James just simply saying, look, don't worry about the Gentiles if they really want to know that they are to be circumcised and they are to live a life in obedience to the law of Moses. Moses is preached in every synagogue on every Sabbath. They can go there to hear the Word of God. They don't have to just listen to Paul. They don't have to just listen to Barnabas. They don't have to listen to the message that's communicated by them. They can go to the synagogue and learn precisely how they need to be living. That was what James said. That was effectively what he said. He did not respond to the dispute by saying, no, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. He did not say that. He did not say, no, the Gentiles do not have to live a life in obedience to the Mosaic law, even though we know nobody can ever do it. He did not say that, and it's important to see that he did not say that. Instead, he said that they could go to the synagogue. And so there was a disagreement, and this disagreement was never resolved. And so when you consider what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 28, where he said, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And we consider what James wrote in his letter, chapter 2, verse 24. He said, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Then you can see that there is a distinct difference, and we have several examples in the scriptures that show that they never did agree. And so for us to consider that the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans and the letter that James wrote, and he wrote his letter to the lost tribes of Israel. He did not even acknowledge the Gentiles in his letter that he wrote. He was not considering that perhaps the Gentiles would have an interest in what he had to say. When you consider these two letters, you can see that the differences are acceptable, and in fact, we should expect there to be differences. If they were saying the same thing, why would they be having a conflict in Jerusalem? Why would they even have to have those discussions? discussions that they were having in Acts chapter 15 it wouldn't make any sense it would be a contradiction if these two passages were in agreement with each other so please understand that that the differences is not to say that there is a contradiction i personally believe that the differences show that there is no contradiction that in fact they were teaching things that were very different Now, in this broadcast, I'd like to move forward in Galatians chapter 2. In the previous broadcast, I did go through Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and I'll go ahead and review that in this program. But what I would really like to focus on is the following verses, Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. This is Paul's account of what took place in Jerusalem. In the previous broadcast, I was explaining what took place in the Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem council, and now in Galatians chapter 2, we can see how Paul felt about what he experienced when he went to Jerusalem to try and resolve this conflict that he was having. Beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. You see, in verse 2, he does clearly say that he was preaching a different gospel than what they were preaching in Jerusalem. That's what he says. In verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. What was the liberty? It wasn't just a matter of circumcision. It was a matter of their entire way of life their entire way of living because they were teaching according to the laws of the Pharisees it says in Acts chapter 15 verse 5 that there were members of the Pharisees who believed and they were the ones who were arguing this issue they were arguing and creating this dispute they were living a lifestyle that was how they lived they may believe certainly that Jesus is the Messiah but they lived a lifestyle according to the laws of the Pharisees believing that if they could live that way they would never come within the boundaries of violating the law of Moses So also these folks, these brethren, would be coming up into the Gentile regions to instruct them on how to live the life of a Pharisee, so that they would never come within the boundaries in their minds of violating the law of Moses. That's what they were referring to. Don't miss this. And so beginning again in verse 5, Paul said, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Beginning in verse six, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. He's not only referring to those false brethren who came up, but he's also referring to the people in Jerusalem that he went down to meet with, to discuss this issue with. He's talking about them in some very unfavorable terms, saying that they seemed to be something. They seemed, they had the appearance of being something. They seemed to be of reputation. Many people may be following them. Many people may be listening to them, and they appear to be something, but in truth, they're absolutely nothing. That's what he was saying. He was saying there absolutely nothing. They added nothing to him. Nothing to his faith. Nothing to his relationship with the Lord Jesus. As far as he was concerned, the leadership in Jerusalem knew nothing. Absolutely nothing. They may certainly know that Jesus is the Messiah, but in terms of our life in the Messiah, what it means to now live our life on a daily basis, what they were teaching obviously would lead someone nowhere. And Paul was saying very aggressively here in his letter, his perspective of what he saw there in Jerusalem, that what they added to him was absolutely nothing. And then beginning again in verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And then in verse 9, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In verse 9, he names names. He names who these people were who seemed to be something. James, Cephas, referring to Peter, and the Apostle John. He says that they seemed to be something, but they were nothing. They were apparently adding to the faith of some people, but not at all to his. He is making a clear distinction, saying that what they believe, what they teach, what they are promoting does not agree with what Paul was teaching, what he was promoting. And so people had to choose. People really had to make a decision with regards to who they were going to be discipled by, in terms of who they were going to listen to, in terms of who they were going to believe. And we're not debating whether or not Jesus is the Messiah at this point. And we're not necessarily debating what salvation is, necessarily. What we're really discussing, what we're really debating... The conflict that really existed was a matter of how do we now live in our daily lives in light of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. The message of the church in Jerusalem of James, Peter, and John, their message was now that you have been saved, you have now perhaps been empowered to now live in obedience to the Mosaic Law. You will now have a renewed enthusiasm to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law. You will now obey the Mosaic Law out of your appreciation for what your God has done for you. You will now live in obedience to the Mosaic Law because you want to be pleasing to God, because your faith will be perfected at that point, and your justification will be defined at that point. This is what they were teaching. and. Make no mistake, that's what people teach today. It's no different. It's described in different ways. There are some variations, of course, but it still is the same message. And there are very few people who are preaching the grace of God and how that transforms a person from the inside. Just as Paul was apparently one of very few people who were promoting the grace of God and how it would transform a person from the inside, so also today there are very few people Very few people, and people had to choose back then, and likewise, people have to choose today. You have to choose. You have to decide. You cannot live in both worlds and be at peace. You have to choose one or the other. Either you rest in and grow in the grace of God, or you rest in and grow in your life of repentance and obedience. If you try to hang on to both, you're going to go nowhere. You will go absolutely nowhere. And I'm saying this because I know numerous numbers of people who have been trying to do this all their life, I'm talking 20, 30, 40, even 50 years, and go absolutely nowhere. And they come to me. They come to me and they say, I have been going absolutely nowhere. And so I'm not saying this just because it sounds like a good accusation to make in order to try to give myself some greater credibility. I certainly don't need that at all. Trust me. I'm saying this because this is what I do on a daily basis. This is what I do. This is how I relate to people. I tell them, quite frankly, I just tell them, look, the reason why you're in bondage and why you're not growing in your faith and why you're just as much of a baby, if not more so than when you first came to Christ, is because you're still wanting to hang on to a life of repentance and obedience instead of trust, instead of reliance on, instead of abiding in the love and acceptance of God. You will never experience it in your life. You'll never be able to embrace it because of these other things that you believe that makes you think that you are not really right with God, that you are not holy before God, that you are not sanctified. And because of that, because that's what you believe, you have only one alternative, and that's to go and try to find a way to become sanctified, to become holy, to become righteous, to become justified, and it will never, ever happen. What works will you perform in order to make that happen? What will you do, and so that you will eventually stop and say, quite boldly, my God is not ashamed of me at all. When will you say that? When will you say, my God accepts me perfectly, without question? When will you really be able to believe that? When will you know that? And when will you ever know the true love of God? If you don't, if you don't experience that, you may believe that he's the Messiah and you may very well be saved, but your life will be totally empty. And when you die and go to heaven, you can start over there, but you're going to miss out on an awful lot right now. Beginning again in verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. In other words, look, I'll tell you what, Paul, we obviously disagree. But you just go ahead and go to the Gentiles and leave the Jews to us. Because in the Jewish mind, in the prideful Jewish mind, the Gentiles really didn't matter anyway. It was only the Jews that were important. Did Paul concede? Absolutely not. Paul did describe that this is what they said, but that's not what he did. If you continue to read through the Acts of the Apostles, you find that he did continue to go to the Jews. He did, he continued to go into the synagogues. He did not comply with what they decided in Jerusalem. Those who seemed to be something to him were nothing, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. Continuing on in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's what he said. In Jerusalem, he was obviously very polite about the situation. But out of town in the Gentile regions, when really confronted with the situation, he stood up for the truth. He stood up to Peter and went right up into his face and said, you are a liar. You are deceiving people. You are not being honest about the grace of God. And you are leading people astray into a life of bondage that will hold them and lock them up from experiencing the living God in their lives. That's what he had to say. And so those in Jerusalem obviously didn't agree with him, and he was very polite with them in their territory, in their region, in the circumstances that he found himself in while discussing the subject with them. But in the real setting, in in the real world, there's no room for that. In the real world, you have to really choose. You can't be wishy-washy about this. You have to really decide how you're really going to live. And this was just over the dietary laws. That's all this was. It was just over whether or not Peter was going to eat with the Gentiles. Something as simple as that. But Paul did say very distinctly that you are justified by faith and not by your works. And so why are you trying to instruct people to live in accordance with works when there is no justification there? There is no justified reason for trying to live that way, especially because you'll never live it. As I said in the previous broadcast, how would you like to live a life that you know you will never be able to live? How would you like to try to be a person you know you will never be? That is a life of total vanity and emptiness, and there is nothing there. Even if you were to accomplish that, my friend, even if you were to live a life of performing the works of God, even if you lived a life of repentance, from all of your sins and you were fully obedient to every command that the Lord Jesus ever gave to you, what would that really leave you with? It would still leave you with nothing. It would leave you with nothing. Listen to me, my friend. You would have absolutely nothing. You would sit there in your holiness, in your repentance and in your obedience and all the works that you've done for God on his behalf and you would still have absolutely nothing. Because that is not why you're here. You're here so that you can know your God. And there is no promise that says that if you're fully repentant and fully obedient, you will know him. There is no promise to that effect. You may know yourself, but you certainly won't know him. You won't know him. And when you go before the Lord in heaven, and you go before him, and and you see him, and he sees you coming, is he going to say, I know who you are? He might very well say, I don't know who you are. And you might very well say the same thing. Well, that's okay. I don't know who you are either. Because I devoted my entire life to turning away from sin and turning towards good works and turning towards obedience, but I never turned towards you. And I don't know you. There is a difference. Look, I'm telling you this from personal experience. I know what it is to live a life of a Pharisee. I know what it is to live a life fully devoted To repentance from all of my sin every day, every moment, and living a life focused on living in obedience to the commandments of God and to the commandments of Moses and to the commandments that were given through the Lord Jesus, I know what that is. Make no mistake, I do know what that is. I might be new to you in some regards, but trust me, this subject is not new to me at all. I know what it is to live a life like this, and I know how empty it is, and I know how dead it is, and I know what it Is in comparison, to live a life in the grace of God, to truly trust in what He has actually accomplished, to trust in what He has really done, to believe that He really does love me and accept me perfectly because of what He did for me, and to know that He's not ashamed of me, and to rest at that, and to live a daily experience of being at peace with my God, not because of what I do or because of what I don't do, but because of what He did. And I'm telling you, there is a major difference. There is a huge difference to the point where I would honestly say that back then in my life of living in obedience to commandments and obedience to law and obedience and repentance and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it, that that was absolutely nothing. And those who believe that were nothing. And I was absolutely nothing. There is absolutely nothing there. It's absolutely empty and it's dead. But the life in the spirit, the life of the love and acceptance of God, and the understanding that he reveals, that he's free to reveal, because we both know, he and I, that there's no reason for him not to speak to me. There's no reason. There is nothing that I can ever do that would cause him to turn his back on me. And so he has the full freedom to be able to share with me whatever it would be on his mind, whatever is on his heart. And whatever I would want to know, I can freely ask, and if he's so gracious enough to answer, he'll do so, knowing that there is no barrier between us, to show me what he sees through my eyes, to express to me what he hears through my ears, so that he can in turn also speak through my mouth, he can walk with my feet, he can touch with my hands. And those were things that he could have never done if I was preoccupied with my repentance and obedience. It would never happen. It never did happen. But now it does, as a miracle of God, because I can be at peace with him, because I can be at rest, and I can be available to be used by my God instead of being so preoccupied with how I might be able to use myself and use my flesh for him. There is a major difference, and I really want you to understand that the difference is critical. It is vital in terms of our maturity in the faith. In terms of our maturity as being believers. Look, I fully understand how James could have felt. And I fully understand how the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter could have felt. I know what they could be thinking. I know what they could be feeling. I really do. I understand what it is to be associated with the Pharisees. And I understand what it is to try to live a life to be pleasing to God. I know what that is. And I can relate to them in many ways. Because when I first came to know the Lord Jesus, I didn't understand this right away. I didn't. It was many years, many years before I came to understand really what he did for me and what that really implied. I understood that Jesus was the Messiah. And then a a year or two later, I really had a full understanding of the gospel. But it was about three to three and a half years later after I was saved that I was finally able to let go of the law to let go of it, to realize that it really was not the way that my God wants me to live. It took some time. It really did. For Paul, it apparently took some time. For James, it would take some time. For John, it would take some time. It is acceptable to have a time of transition. From walking away of the life of obedience and repentance, it is acceptable to take some time to make that transition. Everyone goes through it to one degree or another, and if they don't go through it right away, they'll eventually get buried under it for a little while, and then perhaps they'll come out of it. But just because they come to know that Jesus is the Messiah and they believe the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that they ever will. James may never have believed otherwise, and John may have never believed otherwise, and Peter. May have never believed otherwise. Really, with true conviction, there were moments. Obviously, he seemed to be waffling between the two. I mean, he was the one who understood from Acts chapter 10 that he didn't need to be living in obedience to the dietary laws. Why is it here later on, after Acts chapter 15, he's meeting with meeting with Paul in Antioch, and he's still struggling with the same issue? Didn't he get that resolved when he was talking with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? It is a lifelong struggle for many of us, and so have patience with those who are struggling with it. But in the midst of that, and in, in the midst of having patience, do not step away from the truth, and do not let go of the conviction and the truth and the reality that we do not live a life of repentance and obedience. We live a life of trust and reliance, and it is a very different way of living. My friend, I understand there's no question that we would expect to see a change in a new believer's life. In a believer's life, after maturing in the faith, we would certainly expect to see a change, we would expect to look at their life and say that there is an expression of repentance, that there is an expression of obedience. That's not the argument. The argument is what is really going to be the origin behind it. What is going to be the dynamic behind these demands? And according to the life of a Pharisee, according to the life of justification by works, it is to pursue works and to do these things, put sin out of your life, and obey the commandments of God, because in that way you're going to make your justification perfect. But there's a completely different way, and that's what I'll explain in the next broadcast because I am out of time for this one, where I will explain in detail how it is that the justification we rest in is what transforms a person from the inside and changes their heart so that the living God has the opportunity to express himself within and through us, to show himself and reveal himself in the world that we engage.